last Sunday morning about divine guidance, <clears throat> excuse me, being led by the Holy Ghost. And um, I believe it's important for each and every one of us to recognize the, the makeup of man or how God created us to be. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, Paul gives us by the Spirit of God, he identifies the makeup of man, the threefold nature of man. He says, I pray God, well, now the God of peace. He starts off saying, now the God of peace sanctify you holy. Notice that word holy. It's W-H-O-L-L-Y. Completely. So he's going to talk about the completeness of man. So he said, very God of peace sanctify you holy. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's giving us the makeup or the, uh, well, how God made man. He made man a spirit being. Jesus told the woman at the well of Samaria that God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, we know that the Bible says unequivocally that man was made in the image of God. So if God is spirit, man had to be made a spirit being too. By definition, if he's in the image of God, he has to be a spirit being. Isn't that right? So he says, I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless into the coming of the Lord Jesus. So that has to mean that man is a spirit. But he has a soul. And he lives in a body. Now, medical science, or I should say psychologists, have identified that there's a part of man that they can't reach. They call it the subconscious mind. But if man had a subconscious mind, God would have told us. What they've done is they've tapped into the reality of something that goes beyond the physical, deeper than the physical being, and that's the spirit of man. Now, another scripture we looked at as a text was Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27, which says, The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. Now, the, the implication in what uh, this verse of scripture is referring to, where it says the spirit of man is the candle, that word cam candle is the word light or lamp. And what it's telling us, and of course we know a little bit by uh, archaeology, experiments and finds and things like that. In those days, the days that the Proverbs was written, or the, things that the, the days that these things were said, they used little oil lamps to light their homes, to guide their way. And so where it says the spirit of man is the candle of the lamp of the Lord, it's literally telling us that God will enlighten you or God will reveal to you or God will guide you by your spirit. Now, whether they knew at the time or not, we, we can't say with certainty. Everybody certainly didn't, I'm sure. But we know from the scripture we just read in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 that man is three parts. That means God could lead us or he could establish things in such a way to lead us by our souls if he wanted to. It means he could have established things so that we would be led by our bodies if he wanted to. But that's not the way he set things up. He set things up and revealed to us that this is the way that it works to lead us or guide us by our spirits. Now, most Christians have, uh, it, it seems to me, you judge it for yourself, but it seems to me that most Christians have very little knowledge about the fact that they are even spirit beings. 
about the only thing that the modern day church focuses on in this direction as evidenced by the way that, that things are taught and ways that the word is ministered. About all that the average Christian knows about being a spirit being is that he goes to heaven after he his body is dead. But if the importance of this verse of scripture, Proverbs twenty twenty seven, is talking about how God will guide us or provide us direction, then shouldn't we put more emphasis on the fact that we are spirit beings than anything else? We also use this as a text scripture, well, two scriptures actually, in Romans chapter 8. Notice verse 14 that says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So Paul, who's inspired by the Holy Ghost to write these things, is telling us, or I, I prefer to look at it this way, the Holy Ghost is telling us through Paul, That it's God's plan to lead us. God wants to lead us. He wants to guide us. He wants to provide us divine inspiration, divine guidance, and divinely lead us by the Holy Ghost. Well, how's he going to do that? Notice verse 16. The Spirit itself, King James says itself, the margin says himself. He's not an it. The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirits. That we are the sons of God. Now notice he's not bearing witness with our souls. See this is Paul. The same writer. Of the letter to the, to the Thessalonians. Where Paul identified that we are spirit, soul and body. Man is a spirit. He has a soul and he lives in a body. Well the Holy Ghost who gave him those, that inspiration. To write to the Thessalonians. Is now inspiring him to write to the Romans. And so it's the Holy Ghost saying that I, the Spirit of God, will lead you, will guide you by bearing witness with your spirits. Not bearing witness with your minds. Not bearing witness with your bodies. It seems to me that, that many Christians, I hope it's not most, but many Christians, look for guidance in every other way other than what the Bible says God will do. You don't hear too much about it anymore in these days. Not that things have changed any. It's just that people talk in different terms. But in years past, people used to talk about putting out fleeces. Well, as I understand it, a fleece, which refers back to what Gideon did, when God appeared unto Gideon and told him that he wanted him to lead the children of Israel against their enemies, Gideon wasn't sure who was talking to him about anything. And so he required of the Lord. He said, I'll put this fleece, which is a, a, a little animal skin type thing, I guess. He said, I'll put this fleece out on the ground. And I may have these two confused. I'm not sure which one was first. But one time he said, if it's wet and the ground is dry, then I'll know it's you. Well, the next morning he got up and it was wet and the ground was dry. And did Gideon say, now I know it's you? Talking to the Lord, did he say, now I know this is the leading of the Lord? No, he turned it around and said, we'll have to do that again. This time, if the ground is wet and the fleece is dry, then I'll know it's you. Now, folks, think about how silly that is. He's requiring a circumstance to reveal the leading of God for him. And even when the circumstance worked the way he did, that he asked for it to work, he still didn't know it was God. 
But it seems that a lot of, a lot of people in this modern day church are looking for circumstances. I guess we hear more about opening and closing doors nowadays than fleeces. But it's still the same thing. People are looking for, many people are looking for, too many people are looking for. Identifying God and his plan and his purpose through physical circumstances. Lord, if you want me to do this, open that door. Lord, if you don't want me to do this, close that door. Well, in the physical realm, Satan has influence. He can open and close a lot of doors himself. So a door that's open or a door that's closed is no indication in any way whatsoever that it's really God. Well, why do we do this? Why do people do this? Why do people look for physical circumstances or signs in this physical realm trying to prove God or prove his will or whatever? I believe it's because they don't know that they can renew their mind to the word. Or if they do know, they're too lazy to do it. They want God to provide something else for them so they don't have to spend the time searching his word, spending time with him in fellowship and so forth. But that's just not the way God leads. It's not the way God leads. Now, Paul talked about, we looked at what Paul said and, and even what Peter said last week as well, talking about the, the spirit of man. Paul calls him the inward man. He said in Romans chapter 7, verse 22, but I delight in the law of God after the inward man. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, but though the outward man perishes, he's talking about the body, though the outward man perishes, the inward man is renewed day by day. He's talking about the spirit. Peter used different terms. Peter talking about the spirit of man said in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4. He said, but let it be the hidden man of the heart. He calls him a hidden man. And most places, not every place, but most places in the Bible where the word heart is used is talking about the spirit. And as a general rule, there may be exceptions. There are exceptions, but they're not very often, not very common. As a general rule, every time the Bible says heart, you should recognize that it's attempting to point you to something, some knowledge, some truth about the spirit. You should substitute the word spirit for the word heart in 99% of the cases that the word is used in scripture. So Peter talks about him as being the hidden man of the heart. Well, why is he talking about him being hidden? What's he hidden from? He's hidden from the five physical senses. And see, folks, once Adam fell in the Garden of Eden, he lost the ability to discern spiritually. From the point that he fell, everything that man has learned about himself, about his environment, about the world that we live in, is information that's been gained through the five physical senses. Every bit of our education system is based on knowledge gained through the senses, the five physical senses. Now, we've got billions of dollars worth of industry that's based on the development of the human body. We've got billions, maybe trillions of dollars in the educational system, systems in this world that focus on the development of the mind. But where do we go to develop our spirits? Where's that going to be found? Look at Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, I want you to notice what the Holy Ghost is telling us 
In verse 12, he says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder or separating of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Now notice he says that the word of God and only the word of God divides between soul and spirit or separates soul and spirit. And very simply what he's telling us is the only way you're going to be able to tell the difference between your spirit and your soul is by the word of God. You remember when Jesus was tempted of the devil in Matthew chapter 4. First thing the devil tempted Jesus with was the hunger, the physical hunger that he was experiencing. He had been fasting for 40 days. And at the end of those 40 days, the devil came. He didn't tempt him or test him or engage in this stuff for all 40 days. The 40 days of fasting on Jesus' part was to prepare himself and spend time with God so that he would be prepared for the ministry that he was about to enter into. It wasn't 40 days of being tempted by the devil. But when the devil came, the tempter proposed to Jesus that if he was really the son of God, make these stones turn into bread. And you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone. And he's talking about physical food. Bread is a type of physical food. So he's saying, just as bread or food is for the body, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He's saying the word, God's word, is food that will feed or develop your spirit, just like natural food is for the body. The Word of God is the only thing that will divide between soul and spirit. Now, you remember we looked at some, uh, uh, well, not in great detail, but we looked a little bit last week at Romans chapter 7, where Paul was talking about the struggle that he experienced. He wanted to do right from his heart, from his spirit, the inner man. And remember 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. One translation says it's a new species of being. Another translation says it's a new self. See, so many times Christians talk about dying out to self. Well, if you've been born again, you don't want to die out to self. You want to live and let that new self, that new man, dominate your actions and your behaviors and your thoughts here on the earth. But Paul talked about his struggle. He recognized that there were opposing forces at work in his life. From his heart, he was able to identify, from my heart, I always wanted to do the right thing. That didn't mean that he always did the right thing. And so if his heart, the real man on the inside, the inward man, if he wants to do right, but you still wind up doing things that are wrong, and Paul would experience regret and disgust with the wrong things that he did in his life, Paul came to the same place that all of us are going to have to come to as well. See, first and foremost, the devil wants to tempt you, and the way that he tempts you is through your body, the outer man, the outward man. He first wants to tempt you, and then if he can influence you to do the wrong thing, to operate contrary to what the Bible says we should do, then he'll condemn you for listening to him. And he'll try to put, it off all, all, put all of it off on you, saying what a terrible person you are. And how you may not even really be saved because of the wrong actions that you experience or participate in. That was the dilemma and the conflict that Paul was experiencing. 
And he came to the realization that the inside man, the man on the inside, made in the image of God, recreated through the new birth. The inward man always wants to do the right thing. Well, Paul recognized that that inward man was him. It's the real him. You remember over in Luke chapter 16, it talks about the the story of the rich man and Lazarus. It tells about the... uh, How the beggar died. Well, both of them wound up dying, but it said the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Well, who was carried by the angels? It says the rich man also died and was buried, and it tells us that he, being in hell, lift up his eyes and saw Abraham's bosom and Lazarus there with him. But who did the angels carry away? They didn't carry away his body. His body was put in the ground in some way or another. Men carried away his body. But he, the beggar, Lazarus, the real him, continued to exist. See, folks, we are made in the image of God, and God is not only a spirit being, he's an eternal spirit being. Spirits are eternal. See, eternal life is not just existence. Because even the unsaved, the lost, are going to exist forever. But eternal life is all about where you're going to spend eternity. The key to eternal life is location, location, location. Doesn't just work for real estate. Works for spiritual things. So the real him, the real man, the man on the inside, the man that really was Lazarus, separated from his body, the real him was carried into Abraham's bosom. Well, we know that's not the way it works now. Paul said, to depart and be with Christ is far better. He tells us now as believers, as Christians, children of God, that when our body is laid in the ground or when our body expires, instantly we're transported to the presence of God. Ephesians 4 uh, tells us about when Jesus was raised from the dead, he led captivity captive into the presence of God. What that really means is he took those that were in Abraham's bosom That because redemption was not available to them, they were in kind of a holding place until Jesus was raised from the dead. And then he took those Old Testament saints with him into heaven. You remember on the mountain of transfiguration, it tells us about how Jesus was transfigured before Peter and James and John. And there appeared in, in glory, the Bible says, Moses and Elijah and started talking with Jesus. Well, the thing that we normally remember about the story is that Peter got all excited and said something stupid about let's build tabernacles here. And God spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son, hear him. That's King James English for saying, Peter, shut up. There's more important things than what you're thinking about going on right now. Well, why did Moses and Elijah appear unto Jesus? The Bible says that when they did, Jesus talked to them of his death, upcoming death. There's a scripture in the Old Testament that says God doesn't do anything without revealing it first to his prophets. Moses and Elijah were the two main or greatest prophets of the Old Testament. What they appeared to Jesus for? So that they could gain information to tell everybody else in Abraham's bosom. Jesus is on the way. The Messiah is coming. So the real man, the man on the inside, the inward man, exists forever. He exists forever. Now turn with me over to Philippians chapter 1. 
I want you to see what Paul says about his own experience. Notice, let's start reading in verse 21. Paul is talking previously about people preaching the gospel and the things that are going on. Uh, he specifically says some people are preaching the gospel uh, hoping to add to my afflictions and my bonds. He concludes by saying, even though people aren't always preaching Jesus for the right reason, thank God they're preaching Jesus. But in verse 21, Paul said, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, there's all kinds of goofy ideas and theories about what happens to people after they die. I'm not sure if it's Buddhism or Hinduism, maybe both, I don't know. But one of those religions, or other religions, we'll say it that way, other religions have the idea and promote the idea of reincarnation. And the importance of that doctrine, or the proposal of that doctrine, is that we're supposed to live such good lives here on the earth that we reincarnate into something better. But if you don't live a good life or whatever, however you want to identify that, you might come back as a cow or a pig or something like that. Well, that wouldn't be much gain, would it? Paul said, for, me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He recognizes that death, physical death, is far greater and provides us a... a, a through our relationship with God through Jesus provides for us much greater blessings than anything we experience here on the earth. Now, folks, I'm not saying that we should focus all of our attention on those types of things. Some people, in trying to do that, become so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. They're just waiting for this better thing. So I'm not proposing that all of our attention should be on that. But it should be enough of our knowledge. And we should be established enough in that knowledge, that truth, so that we recognize that the things of the earth that are so important really are of minimal importance. With the knowledge that the worst day you can have in heaven, and there are no worst days in heaven, but the worst day you could have in heaven is better than anything this earth offers. It's better than anything that you and I might ever pursue here on this earth. Well, Paul's mindful of that. So he says, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But notice what he talks about next. He said, but if I live in the flesh or live in the body, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I wot not. In other words, he's saying he's got a choice still yet to make. Now, what's his choice about? Well, the only thing he's talking about. He's living apart from his physical body in the presence of God. Dying physically, in other words. There's not too many people that know that we have a choice about that. But that's exactly what Paul's telling us by the Holy Ghost. He said, but if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I what not. For I am in a strait betwixt two. Here's Paul's conflict now. Remember in Romans chapter 7, he talked about the conflict between wanting to do right from his heart, his spirit, in contrast with the actions of his body and the influence of, the, of sin upon his flesh. He said, for I am in a strait betwixt two, 
having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, verse 24, nevertheless to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. So who is Paul talking about when he speaks of himself? He said, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ. And the only other option is to abide in the flesh or to live in the flesh. And he says, it's better for you if I stay here in the flesh. Talking to the Philippians. It's better for them if he continues his ministry and continues revealing to them things about God and leading them in their Christian walk. But he said, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ. I, the man on the inside, the real me, the spirit being that is Paul, wants to leave the body and go be with the Lord. So you can very clearly see that the real man, this hidden man of the heart that Peter talks about, this real man, the man on the inside, is always reaching out toward heaven. Always reaching out toward heaven. Even though the, the body, the physical man, the outward man, is always reaching out to stay here on the earth. The body is of the earth, so it doesn't want to depart. But the spirit is not of the earth. The body was formed by the hands of God, and then God spoke or breathed life into him. So the body is of the earth, but the spirit is of heaven. And everything's trying to get back to where it originated from. The body wants to hang out here at the earth, on the earth, but the spirit is always reaching out to go to heaven. Now look with me over to uh, Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Paul is going to give instruction to the church on how to live our Christian lives in the greatest measure of victory possible. He's telling us, this same guy that knows the difference between the inward and the outward man, the same guy that struggled between the inward man and the outward man, to recognize that his spirit, the real him, was always wanting to do right. And he concludes by saying that there's no condemnation now because my body still wants to do the wrong thing. That's just a function of the experience of sin that we've had here on the earth. But Jesus redeemed us from the condemnation of that. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. It's what he said in the way he said it in Romans 8.1. Romans 12, 1, however, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Most translations translate those last two words, spiritual worship. Remember when Jesus said to the woman, to the woman at the well of Samaria, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Here's the spiritual worship that he's talking about. We charismatics have such a narrow point of view on this that we sometimes think worshiping in the spirit means singing in other tones well thank god we can sing in other tones it provides great benefit but that's not spiritual worship spiritual worship is you controlling your body and allowing it to be dominated by the real you the man on the inside because if we will do that it will always lead us into righteous acts rather than sinful ones so he said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now, we know he's talking to Christians. We know he's talking to spirit-filled believers. 
And he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you, everybody say you. Notice this is not something God does for you. That you present your bodies. Notice their bodies are their possession, not the real them. That you present your body. See, if the body was the real man, he would have said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves. But he's talking about the body, which is our possession. Man is a spirit. He has a soul and he lives in a body. So I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service or spiritual worship. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove. That word prove means determined by experience, or literally just experience. That you may experience what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, folks, I want you to notice something. These are believers, men and women, that have been born by the work of Jesus, born again, because Jesus shed his blood, spotless, sinless, holy blood, for them to become new creatures. Again, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, old things have passed away, and all things become new. Well, we know the all things that become new aren't physical things. People's appearances don't change when they get saved. And we know that all things becoming new doesn't mean their souls. Because the mind of the Christian doesn't change. Wouldn't it be great that once we got born again, the only thoughts that ever came to our mind were thoughts, biblical thoughts, God's thoughts? Wouldn't that be great? But that's not the way it works. So here we see Paul, by the Holy Ghost, or again, my preference is to say the Holy Ghost through Paul, is telling the believers, those that have been born again and spirit-filled, that they're supposed to do something with their bodies. And they're supposed to do something with their minds. Now, folks, by definition, that means their minds and their bodies haven't been affected by the new birth. And he tells them, and us, that it's through this renewing of the mind that we are transformed to know and experience the blessings of God to their fullest measure. So that has to mean, therefore, that you could be saved and born again and never do anything about presenting your body, never do anything about renewing your mind, and live your whole life on the earth not experiencing God's best for your lives. Well, then what good is the new birth? Location, location, location. But unfortunately, there are too many believers in this modern-day church that are living just on the fact that when they die, they go to heaven. But by failing to renew their minds and and present their bodies a living sacrifice, they fail to experience everything that God has for them. They fail to experience anything that God has for them outside of the new birth itself. This is why you've got so many Christians that are waiting to stand before God and ask him, why did you allow this? And it won't take them long to hear from God and to understand that he didn't allow anything. They were the ones that allowed whatever happened. He gave them the word of God so that they could renew their minds to the truth and experience his perfect will. And it's not God's fault if we fail to take hold of that and act on it. And that's where too many Christians are living. 
that's why too few Christians are able to discern the, the witness, the inward witness, or the leading of God. Now turn back with me to 1 Kings chapter 19. I want you to see an Old Testament example. Now I'll have to set this up for you a little bit. The 18th chapter tells us about how that Elijah had told Ahab the king, one of, if not the wicked, most wicked and evil king of Israel that Israel ever had. He tells him that it won't rain. And it doesn't rain for three years. And as a result, the drought is so severe that people are suffering all throughout the kingdom. And as a result, they're turning to other gods. Ahab's wife Jezebel particularly was promoting the God of Baal, God called Baal, and his worship throughout the land of Israel. And the drought is so severe that everybody's suffering terribly. And as a result, because of the suffering of the drought, Baal worship increases more and more and more. Because the idea is if we can offer enough sacrifices to Baal, then he'll change the situation and make it rain. And so Elijah comes on the scene after three years of this drought that he prophesied. He tells King Ahab, and this is the first thing that happens when Elijah shows up. Elijah shows up and says to Ahab, it's not going to rain till I say so. And then he departs. That's quite an entrance for a prophet. Wouldn't it be great to have prophets like in the days of old that would speak to leaders and kings and nations like in times past? I believe God still wants to do some of that stuff. If he ever wanted to do it, he must still want to. So anyway, here comes Elijah after these three years of drought. And he says to the people, how long halts you between two opinions? If Baal is God, let's serve him. But if God is God, let's serve him. And so he has a contest. You remember the story. They go up onto the mountain called Carmel. And Elijah says, we'll offer, I'll offer sacrifices unto God. You offer sacrifices unto Baal. The God that answers by fire will accept that he's God. Well, the prophets of Baal do their thing. They wind up cutting themselves with stones and jumping up and down on the altar, which is proof that the devil makes you do stupid stuff. <laughs> and so finally, after Elijah starts mocking them, they've been at it for hours, he says, that's long enough. If your God was going to answer, he would have done so already. So he rebuilds the altar. He puts the sacrifice on the altar. He has them dig a trench about the altar and fill the trench with water, a lot of water. Now, water was such a precious commodity in those days because of the drought that Elijah is showing, without equivocation, he's showing that God is the God of rain. He's the God that created the, the earth and the universe. And so finally, after doing all this stuff, they put enough water on there to where it wets down the, the sacrifice it soaks water into the, the wood that's being used for the sacrifice and it's filled the trenches around the altar to overflow it. And then Elijah stands back and says, now, Lord, show them that you're the most high God, the God of Israel, that I'm your servant and that I've done all these things at your word. What a great prayer. 
Show them that you're Lord, that I serve you, and that I did these things because you told me. And immediately fire falls from heaven. It consumes the sacrifice. It burns the wood. It vaporizes the stones that are used for the altar and vaporizes the water around the altar as well. Well, as a result, everybody falls down on their face and says, God is God. And then they gather the 450 prophets of Baal, which were on Queen Jezebel's payroll, and, he's, and they're slaughtered. Not one is left. Well, Jezebel hears about this, and she says, so shall the gods do to me if I don't kill Elijah by this time tomorrow. Now, I'm not exactly sure why Elijah responded the way that he did. But he's just had a contest that if he had lost, they would have killed him just like he killed the 450 prophets of Baal. His life was on the line when he issued the challenge to Baal to answer by fire. But when he hears that Queen Jezebel wants to kill him, he starts running away. He runs for three days, comes up under a juniper tree, and says, oh, Lord, just let me die. Now, folks, if he really wanted to die, he could have stayed where Jezebel was. <laughs> he didn't mean that any more than we mean some of the things that we say to God. So an angel supernaturally feeds him twice, and he winds up going up into the mountain into the mouth of a cave, little cave. And if you've ever been to Israel and see the place, the opening is about the size of the chair that you're sitting in. It's just a small, small place. We, don't th we think of caves as being big, open things. He's crawling into a rock. That brings us to 1 Kings chapter 19, when the Lord begins to, to, uh, to speak to him, to answer him. I'm going to start in verse 9. It says, And he came there unto a cave. And lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? Why are you here? Well, we know the answer to that. He's here because he's running for his life. And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant and thrown down thine altars and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I am only left, even I only am left, and they seek my life and to take it away. And he said, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent, that means broke, the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. Now, folks, let's clarify some of this. Certainly the Lord was in the wind. He's the one that caused the wind. And wind doesn't normally break rocks, does it? I mean, we're not worried about rocks breaking around us or concrete busting up when we have Santa Ana winds, do we? That's not the normal operation of wind. So certainly God is in the wind. But the, the thing that's being conveyed here is that God didn't speak to him through the wind. God didn't speak to him through the circumstances that, that resulted in the wind blowing, meaning the broken rocks and so forth. Now that had to be quite a sight. Can you imagine... Witnessing a wind that's strong enough to break rocks, and you're just standing in the middle of it watching the whole thing. 
A wind strong enough to break rocks would break bones, wouldn't it? But it doesn't. God is trying to show him and thereby show us something about the way he leads and speaks. So God told him to go outside and stand on the mountain. A wind comes by and breaks the mountain up, breaks the rocks, but there's no guidance. There's no voice of the Lord as a result. Let's keep reading. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. Well, again, the Lord caused the earthquake to try to teach him something to bring a truth to his knowledge. But God didn't speak to him through the earthquake either. It's so funny to me that how, so, how things, when things happen, tragedies happen, you've got certain parts of the church and leaders in the church, certain leaders in the church, they'll stand up and say, this is God at work. The hurricane that struck New Orleans is because of the sinfulness and the wickedness of that city. Well, if God doesn't speak through earthquakes, why would he speak through hurricanes? He didn't speak through the wind. I guess a hurricane or a tornado might be the closest thing that we could use to describe the wind that broke the rocks. But that's not how God speaks. Now, folks, God doesn't change. If God's not speaking through that wind and not speaking through that earthquake, he's not speaking through winds and earthquakes today. But some people who aren't willing to discipline themselves enough to find out the truth of the word for themselves are quick to listen to people that will speak for them even when they're speaking against God. Now, I don't think they know they're speaking against God. But if the Bible's true, then they have to be. Verse 12, and it says, And after the earthquake, earthquake there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Same thing. The Lord's caused the fire. It doesn't tell us about the severity of the earthquake. It doesn't tell us about the severity of the fire. But it does tell us that even though God displayed his power again, that manifested into some great event or maybe terrible event, that's not where the guidance of the Lord is. But after the fire, there was a still small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood and entering in, stood in the entering of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? Very same question he asked him before. Before Elijah's answer was, I'm the only one left. And so God shows him, I don't speak to circumstances. I don't speak through storms. I don't speak through earthquakes. I don't speak through fires. I speak to you by a still small voice. Now this still small voice is an Old Testament example of the inward witness that the Bible says the Lord speaks to us through. Just an inward witness. Just an inward witness. Now what does Paul know about this inward witness? Well, without taking time to read the story, read the whole story, you remember about how Paul was being sent to Rome. The Jews took him in Jerusalem and they wanted to, they did put him in bonds and they wanted to stop his ministry. So he appealed to Caesar. And as a result, as a Roman citizen, the result of that is he had to be. Every person, every Roman citizen had a right to appeal their case before Caesar himself. So Paul is taken captive by the Romans for the purpose of delivering him before Caesar. 
to let Caesar judge rather than the Jews. And part of that was Paul's time spent on the ship. Now, before they got on the ship, you may remember that Paul said, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with much hurt, not only to lives, but to the lading of the cargo of the ship. But it says the, the Roman soldiers believed the sailors, the captain of the ship, more than they gave attendance to what Paul said. Now, if Paul had not been a, um, a prisoner at that point in time, if he had perceived that the ship and the, the trip on the ship was going to be trouble and, and hurtful and maybe dangerous, I'm sure he wouldn't have gotten on the ship. Now, it doesn't say the Lord said, told him. It doesn't say that he had a vision or an angel appeared to him or anything like that. There was a point later on in the trip, a couple of weeks later, where an angel appears to him and gives him further guidance. But Paul just said, I perceive. Well, what does perceiving mean? It means Paul is saying, I'm, I have a witness that this ship, this trip on this boat is going to be wrought with danger. See, folks, I'm sure, I'm convinced from my own experience and having worked with other people for as long as I have pastoring this church, I'm convinced that there's a lot of times where we pick up things in our heart that because we're not attentive enough or giving enough of our focus to the leading of God, we wind up getting ourselves in our own trouble. And even in those cases, many people will say, why did God let this happen? Well, Paul couldn't rightly stand before the Lord and say, Lord, why'd you let this happen? Because he knows in his spirit that it's going to happen. Now, again, because he's a prisoner, he doesn't have the, the choice. He doesn't have the right to make the decision for himself. But I wonder how long during the storm, the two weeks or two or three weeks worth of storm, where all the sailors and the captain of the ship and these guys that are professional I wonder how long it took them to say, man, I wish we'd listened to that Paul guy. See, folks, the inward witness is something that you know, even though you can't explain how you know. The Lord gave me a, a, a phrase a couple of weeks ago. And the word that he emphasized was a hint. Now, let me tell you how this works or how I've experienced it to work on many occasions. But this one was pretty important. In, uh, in 1984, Beth and I left from working with Brother Hagen, Kenneth Hagen Ministries. And we really didn't know what we were supposed to do by a process of elimination. I knew I was called to the ministry. I knew there was something God had for me. But I didn't have any clear direction on what to do. So it, through the process of elimination... We began to travel to other churches and did some work overseas teaching. Well, in 1985, probably early in the year of 1985, something changed. And I, even now, I can't tell you what it was. But something changed. I began to have a, a witness that a change was coming. I didn't know what the change was. I opened my eyes a little bit wider at that point. But it was just a hint. Now, some of you ladies that are good cooks, you can taste things and, and taste hints of spices. 
Just a hint. Now, I don't know anything about that stuff. Butter's my favorite spice. <laughs> but some people will ask questions. They'll taste it, and good cooks are able to say, does this have cinnamon in it or nutmeg or allspice or whatever? That's why I like butter. You don't, you don't ever have to ask. You always know when butter's in something. But when I got a hint, and that's really what it was, when I got a hint that something was going to change, there was a change coming, I began to open my eyes a little wider and as a result opened my mind to different possibilities. And during that time, when I knew a change was coming but didn't know what the change was, we had several opportunities open up to us. We had churches offered to us. There was one church in Chicago that was a pretty well-to-do church, pretty large church, and they were looking for a pastor. And they had heard something or another about our preaching, and so they initiated contact. Well, we prayed about it and found out in our hearts that didn't seem right. A lot of times it seems, and again, this is my experience with working with other people, a lot of times it seems when people sense a change coming, they jump on the first thing that's different. But if there's a, a witness in your heart that a change is coming, the Lord's trying to get you to open your eyes to see what change he has for you. And during the time when you have a, a witness that a change is coming, there's frustration involved. Frustration is not a bad thing, folks. None of us like it. But it's not a bad thing. It just simply means that something needs to change. But if you don't know what the change is, you can't make the change yet. At least you don't, won't be successful in the change that you make. Well, over the process of time, several months later, I stopped by Kenneth Hagin Ministries to sit down and talk with the guy that I used to work for, work under in the crusade department. And he was familiar with what we were doing and, and we had stayed in pretty close contact. And he found out that a church that I was scheduled to preach in, in this area, we had been there once before, just a one service thing when the pastor was out of town. I think there was some kind of a church retreat or something like that was going on. So we preached for him one Sunday when the pastor wasn't there. And we were scheduled to go back in there. And the time that we were scheduled to go back was a couple of months from the time that I was talking to my friend at Kenneth Hagin Ministries. And I don't have all the details or all the particulars about it. But something had happened to the church where the pastor had left. I was told that there was something about it, at least the accusation of a moral failure. And so the pastor had left. And some of the people were trying to keep things together and get somebody else in there to, to pastor the church. So I didn't know any of that. And he told me, asked me if I knew about it. And I said no. So he told me what he knew. And he and I always had a running joke. We, would, uh, we traveled cross country with Brother Hagin's crusade team uh, in a variety of vehicles, most often the bus. They had a, a great big Greyhound bus type thing that would take the crew and some of the equipment and that type of stuff. 
along with uh, tractor trailers and other things that they needed for the equipment. And so anyway, whenever he and I would go through some God-forsaken-looking place, one that comes to mind is Needles, California. We went through Needles, California several times, going from Oklahoma to California, meetings that they had out here. Somehow or another, I don't remember if he started it or if I started it, but whenever we'd go through a just horrible-looking place, we'd turn to one another and say, I think God wants you to start a church here. And so it was just a running joke. It didn't mean anything. It was just a private thing. Well, after telling me about the, uh, the situation that had happened, the events that had happened with the church out here, and I indicated to him that I hadn't heard and I was scheduled to be back in there in a few months, because of the difficulty that was involved and just a mess everything was purported to be, he said to me, I think God wants you to go there and start a church or pastor that church, I guess is what he said. Well, immediately... Something dropped down on the inside of me. I knew this was the change. Now, how do you know? I can't explain it. I just knew. Now, I misinterpreted what I knew. I thought that what the Lord said or what the Lord was impressing upon me was to come take that church over, pastor that church, the remnant of people that were left from that church, rebuild it, and go from there. Well, several months went by. We did make contact with the church, and they said that they wanted us to come and keep our ministry engagement with them. And so we did, having a full understanding that they were looking at us, whether or not they would want to call us to be the pastor of the church that they still had going. And it was the hardest place I've ever preached. It's terrible. I think it was a combination of the strife that was taking place some people wanted to do one thing some people wanted to do another place another thing so I think it was a combination of that and also just that God didn't want me to have anything to do with it but brother Hagin had told a story that I heard many times about preaching faith and healing in the middle of churches that were just steeped in unbelief he said it was like throwing a rubber ball against the back wall to come back and hitting you in the face well that's what I thought about all the time I was preaching or teaching the word and it became clear later what, uh, what was going on. We went to lunch after the service, and there was one guy that was on the board, the church board, and it became very obvious that he just wanted to run everything. And whoever he called in to be pastor, or whoever the church called in, that he influenced the church to call in to be pastor, was going to be somebody that he could run or else they were out. So they started asking some questions at lunch, and uh, this guy particularly Said, would, said something like, well, how would you handle things if we ran into this crisis? Or if we did this or we did that? And what he was trying to get me to say was that I'd let the board help make the decisions on that. And I never would give him the answer that he wanted. So he finally came right, came right out and said something about the board. To what degree would you allow the board to determine the direction of the church and so forth? And I laughed and I said, none. God calls the pastor to run the church. And if the board is more spiritual than the pastor to know which direction the church is supposed to go, then you ought to have the church be the pastor or the board be the pastor instead of the pastor. Well, he didn't like that, and so lunch was over. (laughs) Now, the side journey on this, 
That man died young. He died at 57 years of age. Now, to you young folks, real young folks, you may think that's not young. Trust me, that's young. So we became aware pretty quickly that this was going to be a little bit more of a situation than what we expected it to be. We kept in contact with the person at the church that knew us best, that we had been kind of going through previously regarding all of the information. He was on the board as well. And so he told me that they, finally, he told me after a couple of months, I called him and asked him just point blank what's going on. And he said that they decided to call somebody else. Well, a couple of weeks prior to that, or I guess it was a couple of weeks, not sure exactly. But a couple of weeks prior to that, the Lord had begun to, start, uh, begin to stir some things on the inside of me. And I began to consider the question, what if they call somebody else? What am I going to do then? And I knew, I instantly knew that that would not change anything that the Lord had put on my heart in any way. So I just assumed, well, if they do that, then I'll have to go out there and start a church on my own. And that's what we wound up doing. Now, folks, the most important thing that I've ever done in my life regarding God's plan for me came to an inward witness. Now, it seems to us that the real important stuff ought to be more spectacular in the guidance that the Lord gives us. I mean, something like that that's going to affect the, result, the end result of my life. Shouldn't God give me a vision? Or shouldn't an angel appear to me? Or at the very least, right in the sky? That's the way we think. But folks, here's the reality. If you're going to experience God's best for you, you're going to have to learn to, to follow the inward witness. And if he did give us a vision or an angel appearing to us or right in the sky about what he wanted us to do, if we didn't know how to follow the inward witness, he wouldn't be able to guide us from that point hereafter. See, just being in the place God wants you to be is not the end of everything. Being in the place that God wants you to be puts you in a position to be able to hear through the guidance of the Holy Ghost what God wants you there for and what he wants you to do. But if I came out here to pastor a church because God gave me some spectacular vision or dream or whatever and didn't have the knowledge or the experience to follow the inward witness, what good would be the church that I pastored? Now, I'm fully convinced that most of the questions people have about what they should do and how they should operate is because, uh, at least the questions that have been brought to me, is because they have greater confidence in me being able to hear from the Lord than they have in themselves to hear from the Lord. I used to, when people would come up and ask me certain things, I used to try to give them everything I knew about the Word regarding their situation. But then I caught on. I realized that they were trying to use me as a shortcut for doing the work for themselves. And if we're not willing to do the work for ourselves, 
It wouldn't matter if somebody started us off in the right direction. We wouldn't succeed anyway. But God's got a way for you to have success in everything you do. It's by the leading of the Holy Ghost. It's by that inward witness. That inward witness will put you over every time. Well, what if he's not bearing witness with us about anything? Well, that could mean two things. It could mean, number one, you're not focusing on what he is giving you. Or number, the second option, number two, would be there's nothing for you to do. See, and this is another one of Brother Hagin's phrases that have gotten me through so many places in my life. He said, you've got to go as much by what God doesn't say as what he does say. See, if you want things to change, but he's not telling you about a change, then there's no change yet to be made. I was talking to somebody this weekend. They were asking about our TV program and such. When we, a couple of years after we started the church, long before many of you ever found out about us, we had tried some different ways to advertise, let people know about our church. We had people that would come to find out about us and they'd ask us how long we'd been there and they were surprised that it had been some time because they didn't know, they hadn't heard. They were surprised that there would be no way for them to have found out up to that point. And so I realized, talked to the Lord about it, wasn't really something that he revealed to me. I just realized that the way this, op- this area operates, there's no print ad that's going to reach the people, all the people that we want to. I realize if we're going to reach people in this area, it's going to have to be through TV. Now, that was just an understanding of how things worked. It wasn't any, there wasn't any direction from the Lord about it. I just realized if we're going to reach the people that we need to, it's going to have to be through TV. Otherwise, this, this area is too big. There's, it's too diverse. There's too many different things that people are caught up in and so forth. That's the only thing that we, or it's the most effective way that it could be done. Well, some years later, probably about um, 12 years ago, I guess, the Lord spoke to me and said, prepare for TV. Well, how do you do that? I said, okay, Lord, tell me how. He didn't tell me a word. How do you prepare for TV? Do you start buying equipment? Well, I don't know anything about TV equipment. I wouldn't trust myself to buy anything. So I shared it with some of the people that were on staff, and I, and I was honest with them. I said, I don't know what this means, but we've got to start preparing for TV. Well, we did. We started gathering information. We didn't buy equipment because we didn't know for sure what, uh, what things were going to be. But we began doing research, trying to find out what was going on and how we would do things. We got as far as finding out what broadcast airtime cost in this area, which was at that time we were the largest um, market in the country. I'm not sure if that's still the case, but it was at that time. And so to get on TV in this largest market in the country, the numbers were astronomical. At least that's the way we saw them. So we continued to do what we could to gather information, knowing that if we were going to start TV, we'd have to do this, and then we'd have to do that, and then we'd have to do some other. 
And then one Sunday night, about 10 years ago, standing right there, we were worshiping God, and the Lord spoke to me and said, it's time to go to on TV. So at that time, we were, we were able to pull the plug. We were able to start off, at least we knew what we had to do and start making provisions for it and so forth. And there were a lot of concerns that I had about TV. And in talking to some people, and there were people that advise you on this kind of stuff. In talking to people, they made it seem to us that we'd have to change our church services to cater to the TV audience. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want our church services to change in any way whatsoever. And so that cut down on a lot of the advice that we got from people. Because when we resisted that, then a lot of people said, well, this is not going to work. And so you need to find somebody else to help you. And so we ran through a number of different people, different groups, uh, advisory groups and consulting firms and so forth. Because I didn't think that TV should have to change our church. I wanted TV just to be a window so people could look in if they wanted to and see what we were really like. Well, so we started taking steps, doing what we knew to do or what we found out we needed to do and that type of thing. And it was the simplest thing. It was the simplest thing. It was easy. It turned out just the way we wanted it to. We're reaching an average of 30,000 homes with each program. And that's just the people that they've identified that are watching live. And since we've been on for almost nine years now, I guess. Since that time, I've met one person that watches us live. And everybody else that's ever told me that they watch, it's through the recording. We recorded in our house just as well. I don't watch them. I can't watch myself. I, I really can't. I can't listen to myself. I can't watch myself. Because I'm always kicking myself saying, why did you say this? Or why did you do that? Why didn't you do this instead? And all that kind of thing. I never expected myself to be my biggest critic when it came to my preaching. But that's the way it is. But in all the, the nine years, I've only met one person that watches us live. Everybody else records it and watches it later. Well, they don't have any way to measure those numbers. So if we're reaching 30,000 people that are watching us live, an average of 30,000, sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. But if we're reaching those people that are watching us live, we have no idea what the number would be of people that are seeing it at other times rather than live. And that number could be significant. I don't know. There's no way for us to know. We're kind of in a position where God, like God told Israel, don't count the people. We can't count the people because we don't know for sure. But it's been the easiest thing in the world. We've never taken a TV offering with one exception. We've never taken an offering on TV on the program. And we've only taken one offering in the years that we've been on TV. And that was when the FCC changed their rules and regulations requiring everybody to go to HD equipment rather than what it used to be we took one offering for that I think we set it up to where people could give over a month period of time and well before the month was over we covered all the expense that we would have for the new equipment and the changeover and so forth but when God leads you to do things even when it's an inward witness even when it's just a hint of what you're supposed to do God takes care of those things Paying, money for, paying the money for the broadcast airtime has never been a problem. 
We've never said a word about money on the TV programs unless we were teaching about prosperity and giving and receiving, that type of thing. We've never said a word about money, and yet we still have about 30 or 35% of the airtime costs come in from outside the church. People just want to send us money. When God tells you to do something, he takes care of it. How important it is for us to be able to recognize the inward witness. There's not one area of your life God doesn't want you to succeed in. There's not one area of your life that he doesn't want you to experience the victory that Jesus has purchased for you with his blood. And he'll lead you. Jesus said the Holy Ghost will guide us into all truth. Another translation says he'll guide us into all reality. Well, what reality? If you need healing, he'll guide you into the reality of healing. If you need finances, he'll guide you into the reality of finances. Whatever you have need of, he'll guide you into the reality of it. Well, how's he going to guide you? Paul told us by the Holy Ghost, he guides us to the inward witness. Folks, it's more important for you to understand the voice of God through the inward witness than it is any other thing in your life. And the more you feed on God's word, the more sensitive you become to that inward witness. The more you pray according to the word, the more sensitive you become to that inward witness. The inward witness is your ticket to victory. It's a guaranteed ticket to victory in every area. So if there's something in your life, if there's an area in your life where you need a greater measure of victory, trust the Holy Ghost to guide you into that reality. Realizing full well that it'll be through the inward witness that he leads you. That makes the word of utmost importance. That makes putting the word into your heart and speaking the word, meditating in the word, renewing your mind to the word. That makes that of utmost importance. The greatest need of the church is to renew their mind to the word. That's the greatest need of the church. That's the greatest need of every believer. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that we have a right to be led by your spirit. Holy Spirit, we give you free reign and course in our lives to guide us into reality. Guide us into the reality of what Jesus purchased for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. Guide us into the victory that he purchased, the success that he provided for us. We trust you, Lord. And Holy Ghost, we reverence your work in our lives. Speak to us. Reveal your plan and purpose for our lives. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Say this after me. Jesus said that his sheep would hear and know his voice. I belong to God. Therefore, I say, because I believe, 
that I hear his voice, that I know the voice of the Lord, that I recognize the inward witness, that leading in the inner man, that leading of God in my spirit, that leads me into victory every time. You do realize, folks, that confession works in every area. The more you say you hear and know the voice of God, the more you hear and know the voice of God. Amen. Let's all stand. Don't forget the newcomer's brunch in the game room. Is that what he said? Game room. Hallelujah. Isn't it a privilege to follow the Lord? Amen. Well, folks, come back and be with us tonight for Healing School if you can. And you're dismissed.